You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Moses and Jethro were actually able to join us today, so special thanks to our guests, Moses and Jethro. They got through the quarantine. So reading from Exodus 18. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for what God's people, Israel, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other, Eliza, because he had said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses. Uh, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and then kissed him. (laughs) They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had confronted them on the way and how the Lord had rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Praise be to Yahweh who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders to Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The next day Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, Because the people have come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. And Jethro responded, What are you doing? What you are doing is not good, Moses. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. 
but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. For simple cases, they can decide themselves, and that will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Moses let his father-in-law go, and he journeyed to his own land. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Aaron, if you don't know me. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, just to clarify before I pray, um, when Stu mentioned that there uh, is church camp next weekend, uh, that also means, in case you didn't kind of read between the lines, that there's no church here like this next Sunday afternoon. So just in case you're new today, uh, if you can't make it on church camp, that's fine. Uh, but also that there's no church uh, here next Sunday due to us being away. Uh, let me pray and we'll come to God's word. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, uh, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to humbly receive it and be changed by it. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, as we come to a chapter like Exodus 18, it's not one of the better known chapters in the book of Exodus, and maybe it can feel a little bit random. You know, Where exactly does it fit into the whole book of Exodus? Uh, actually, the, the uh, Exodus chapter 18 functions like a bit of a hinge in the book of Exodus. Uh, if you look back to Exodus chapters 1 to 17, what you see in those chapters is that Israel is a people who have been saved by God. Right? God has graciously and powerfully acted to save Israel from their slavery in Egypt. That's looking back to chapters 1 to 17. But if you look forward to chapters 19 to 40, you see that now that Israel is a people who've been saved by God, they're called to live for God, uh, to live for God's glory in the world, to make God look great by sharing the good news about him, by living in accordance with his word. But how is it specifically that Israel is to live for God? How are they to live in light of this great saving act that God has done, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt? How are we to live in light of our salvation? If you're a Christian who's trusted in Jesus and knows what it is to be set free from your slavery through faith in Christ, how should we live in light of our salvation? I think that's the big question behind Exodus 18. And in Exodus 18, we see that we're to live in light of our salvation by doing two main things. Really, the two halves of the passage. The first uh, is by sharing the good news of what God has done so that others might come to know Christ. And the second is by sharing the leadership of God's people so that all of God's people can know how to live in line with God's word. So sharing the good news of what God has done, sharing the leadership of God's people. 
Uh, so first, let, let's take a look. If you've got your, uh, the Bible open, or at least this passage, that would be a wonderful thing. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12, where we see that we can live in light of God saving us by sharing the good news of what God has done. I Take a look in verses 1 and 2. Jethro hears about all that the Lord has done for both Moses and Israel through his daughter Zipporah. And maybe a bit of the backstory here, if you haven't been reading through the book of Exodus with us, you might remember that Moses, he's a Hebrew, he's born and raised in Egypt, uh, but uh, when he kind of gets to a certain age, he has to flee into Midian, fleeing from Pharaoh's judgment, because he tried to stand up for one of his fellow Israelites by murdering an Egyptian. So he flees into Midian. While in Midian, he meets this Jethro, uh, who then marries one of his daughters, Zipporah. And he and Zipporah have two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. That's mainly Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush at Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses to return to Egypt to rescue his people from their slavery there. So from Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, we've heard nothing about this Jethro. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, Moses went to Jethro to respectfully ask for his blessing before he went back to Egypt. And so here we're picking up the story with Jethro again. And you'll notice there in verse 1 that Jethro is described as a priest of Midian, which tells us that at this point, Jethro is not a believer in the God of Israel, in Yahweh, the Lord. You know, small caps, Lord, you might see that in your Bible. He's not a believer in that God. Right? He's worshipping and serving the, the pagan gods of the Midianites. He's a priest of Midian. Oh, but verse 1 does tell us that somehow he's come to hear about everything the Lord has done for both Moses and Israel. And I think it's probably through his daughter Zipporah. Because if you take a look in verse 2, it says there, After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her. Now, there's some debate about exactly when this happened, when Moses said to Zipporah, hey, why don't you go to, to your father, uh, go and visit your father. Uh, but we know from verse 5, if you scan down in Exodus 18, uh, that Israel is now camped at a place near the mountain of God, otherwise known as Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And we know from back in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses uh, was called by God at the burning bush, that Mount Sinai is right near Jethro's house. So I think it's pretty likely that Israel arrived at, at their camp near the mountain of God and Moses said to, to Zipporah, hey, we're in the da your dad's neighborhood. Why don't you go and visit him and take the boys too? I'll have a couple of good nights sleep. You know, I think they're, they're a bit older than that now. But, uh, and so I think Jethro hears about all that the Lord has done for both Moses and Israel through his daughter Zipporah. And then in verses 3 and 4, it's like Jethro sees what God has done. Uh, through his grandsons. You see, the, names of, 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 the name of Jethro's first grandson is Gershom. It means, I was a foreigner there. And the second grandson is Eliezer, meaning, my God is helper. Right? The, the names of Moses' sons, Moses has named his sons to tell his own personal story and the story of the people of Israel. Right? When Moses fled to Midian, he felt like a foreigner there, an alien and a stranger in a strange place. 
But then he discovered that God was his help and salvation, rescuing him. Likewise, Israel were enslaved in the foreign land of Egypt, but then God acted as their help and salvation, liberating them from their slavery in Egypt. Right? Jethro's two grandsons kind of speak of all that the Lord has done. For both Moses and Israel, it'd be a bit like if I said to you, uh, meeting you at church, and I said, "Now here's here's my first child. Uh, their name is Redemption, uh, and my my second child, uh, their name is uh, Slavery." And you know, like that. This is what Moses has done, right? His children tell the story to his father-in-law of what the Lord has done for him. So in verses five and six, Jethro wants to hear more. Not just from his daughter, but from Moses. He lets Moses know that he's coming to visit him at his camp near the mountain of God. It's worth just dwelling for a second on that phrase, the mountain of God. I said before, it's Mount Sinai, Mount Mount Horeb. It's worth dwelling on it simply because... It, it reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. There's all sorts of reminders of that in the book of Exodus, uh, all through the Bible indeed. But back in Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and called him to return to Egypt, he said to Moses, once you've rescued my people from Egypt, you will return to this mountain to worship me. You can imagine at the time Moses would have been thinking, yeah, right, like I'm... It's, it's big enough that I'm going to get the people out of Egypt, let alone through the wilderness. But here God is. God has been faithful to his promises. Israel has arrived at this mountain, and they'll soon worship and serve their God. And now it's clear from those early chapters of Exodus that, Jethro, that Moses has a real love and affection for his father-in-law Jethro. That's why he goes and asks for his blessing before returning to Egypt. Uh, but it's also clear that Jethro isn't a believer at this stage. But he's a priest of Midian. We talked about that before. Uh, most likely, uh, Jethro believed in a whole kind of pantheon of gods. Not sure he might have believed that the God of Israel was one God among many gods, but he, like lots of people today, maybe you, he had a baseline assumption that all the gods, all the religions, all the different forms of spirituality, well, they're all basically the same. It doesn't matter which path you pick, doesn't matter which God you pick, it's just like a spiritual supermarket. Just pick whatever you want off the shelf. That would have been Jethro. There was nothing in particular that that set the God of Israel apart as being different or greater than any of the other gods. So in verse 7, this is like an evangelistic opportunity for for Moses with his father-in-law. Moses greets Jethro with love and respect in verse 7. Take a look there in verse 7. Even though Moses, by this stage, is a leader of a great nation, you know, the, the shepherd of millions of people in Israel, he doesn't uh, wait for Jethro to come into his tent like he would have been expected to do in this culture. You know, you come to me like the, like the doctor. You know, the doctor doesn't come out and see you in the waiting room, right? You've got to go into them, right? Uh, and so, Jethro, but that's not, what, that's not what Moses does. He goes out to his father-in-law. He bows down. He kisses him. He treats his father-in-law with great great honour and love and dignity and respect. And maybe there's a lesson in this for us, if we're eager to share the good news of what God has done with someone. Right? We must always approach them with the utmost dignity and love and gentleness and respect. 
But of course, if you want someone to become a believer in Christ, it's not enough to treat them with love and respect. At some point, you actually have to share the good news of what God has done with them. So that's what Moses does in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. He shares the good news of how the Lord has saved Israel. He speaks there of what the Lord has done to Pharaoh for Israel's sake. That's talking about the Lord saving Israel. And then he speaks about how the Lord has sustained Israel, uh, where he references there what, uh, how the Lord has sustained them through all the hardships they've experienced along the way. You see, it's an absolute non-negotiable that we should treat all people with dignity and love and respect. That's what we should do. But if you want someone to become a believer, at some point you have to seize the moment like Moses does here. You have to actually speak some words about what the Lord has done for you, about how the Lord has saved you from your slavery to sin, how he has sustained you through all the different hardships and suffering you've experienced in your life through faith in Christ his Son. You have to speak those words. It's important that these two things go together. Like some of us are really good at building relationships and treating people with love and respect, but we never get to the words. Others of us are eager to speak the words at anyone and everyone, perhaps in not the most loving way, so we never get to the relationship. Well, you see, here Moses has both of those things, treating someone with great love and respect, but still having the courage to speak these words. And notice the repetition in, in these first, this first part of Exodus 18. Right back in verses 1 and 2, Jethro has already heard about everything the Lord has done for Moses and Israel. But Moses isn't worried about that. Right? He tells Jethro everything again. It's just repetition. And maybe that's an encouragement because some of you might have family and friends that you really think it would be wonderful for them to come to know Jesus, but they've heard it all before, you see. And it feels like this time will be no different. This time will be no different. But sometimes it is. Just because they've heard it all before doesn't mean it's not okay to share with them again. Well, in verses 9 to 12, we see the results of of Moses' sharing the good news. Jethro wonderfully becomes a believer. We see that in four main ways. The first is that Jethro comes to real faith in the God of Israel. I take a look in verse 11. Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. You see what's happened here? Jethro has heard what the Lord, the God of Israel, has done in history. Right? How he's graciously and powerfully acted to save Israel from their slavery in Egypt. He's heard about that. And he says, well, that's it. Now I'm convinced. Now I understand that the God of Israel isn't just one God among many gods on the supermarket shelf. This is the greatest God above all gods. He's the holy God, not just in the sense of being pure, but in the sense of being set apart from every other God. Don't try to lump him in with all the gods of the Midianites. He's the greatest of all gods. Now I know this, Jethro says. I wonder if that's the kind of faith you have in Christ. Hearing the good news of what God has done in history through the life, death and resurrection of Christ, can you say, now I know 
that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just one God among many gods. He is the greatest of all gods, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the kind of faith that Jethro comes to in the God of Israel. And that faith brings him real joy. If you take a look in verse 9, you see there that Jethro is delighted to hear the good news of what God has done. But he doesn't just kind of intellectually tick off on it, but he rejoices in it. He celebrates it. It makes him glad to hear this good news. Probably because he'd been wondering if the God of Israel was actually able to deliver on the promises he'd made to Moses. You know, Moses, uh, God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and said, hey, Moses, I'm going to you know, help you to take down this superpower, Egypt, and bring my people out. And Jethro was probably like, yeah, right, okay, we'll go and have a crack. You know? But the Lord has delivered. The Lord is mighty and powerful to save. And this brings Jethro deep and wonderful joy. And this is the same joy that's offered to all those who come to faith in Christ. There was a French mathematician named Blaise Pascal uh, who was born in 1623, so quite a a long while ago. Uh, After running away from God for 31 years, Pascal became a Christian at 10.30pm on the 23rd of November, 1654. Oh, we know that because when he became a Christian, he had a little piece of parchment and he wrote his experience of becoming a Christian down and sewed it onto the inside of his coat. And then eight years later, when he died, people discovered his story of becoming a Christian. So this is what he says. Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past ten at night till about half an hour after midnight. There was fire in my soul, he says certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy. Like Jethro, Pascal was overflowing with joy, experiencing the abundant joy at hearing the good news of what God has done. In Pascal's case, the good news that through faith in Christ, you can have what he calls certitude. I'm sure you talk with that word all the time, right? Certitude is talking about assurance, knowledge for sure, for certain, that if you trust in the death of Christ on the cross in your place, you can know that your past, present and future sins have all been paid for. Nothing left to pay. So you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are washed clean, you are liberated, you are adopted into God's family and sure, secure in the fact that you are loved by him, not just today, but forever. Your name, as it were, is written in the book of life and as Christ says in in Luke chapter 9, I think it is, do not rejoice that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life and it's secure there forever. That's the joy that comes through faith in Christ. It's the joy that should lead us to praise and worship God, as Jethro does in verse 10. Take a look there, verse 10. Jethro says, Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Uh, John Piper uh, famously says in his book, uh, Let the nations be glad. 
mission exists because worship doesn't. We need to talk to people about Jesus because people aren't worshipping him as he deserves. Like God saved Israel for his glory. We've seen that through the book of Exodus so far, that they might come to this mountain and worship and serve him, the true God, not worshipping and serving Pharaoh, the so-called God of Egypt. God saved Jethro for his glory, and that he might join with Israel in praising God for his marvellous deeds. And God saves us for his glory. You remember 1 Peter 2 verse 9, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Right? Mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists so that people would join the chorus of people who are giving our God the praise and worship that he deserves. And they're doing that together, which is the fourth thing we see about Jethro, where as someone who's become a true believer in the God of Israel, he gathers and worships with the community of Israel. Look at this in verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, Moses' father-in-law, in the presence of God. Right, Jethro gets it, I think. He understands that in coming to true faith in the God of Israel, uh, he ought to gather and worship with the community of Israel. And this is worth us continually reminding ourselves of, because we live in a, a kind of highly individualistic culture, and so it can be easy to think you know, that there is a kind of personal, individual aspect to the Christian life, and all of us have to trust and follow Jesus for ourselves, But we must never let that uh, make. uh, We must never assume that that uh, means that kind of gathering with God's people in a community of faith is somehow an optional extra to the Christian life. You know, you can come to church if you want. You can worship God with other Christians if you want, but you don't have to. No, no, no. Why do you? If you come to faith in Christ, you come to be a part of His people. And the way you give concrete expression to being a part of Christ's people is by gathering and worshipping with Christ's people. That's what Jethro does here. How do we live in light of salvation? God has marvellously saved us through trusting in the death of Christ, his son on the cross. How do we live in light of that salvation? First, by sharing the good news of what God has done, that many, many others might come to know Christ. A second, the second half of the passage, verses 13 to 17, we live in line of salvation by sharing the leadership of God's people that we might all know how to live in line with God's word. Uh, There's really a problem and a solution in this part of the passage. Uh, So if you look at verses 13 and 14, Jethro identifies the problem. Moses is like the supreme court of the people of Israel. He's the only leader, teacher, and judge of the people. So all day long, the people are flocking to Moses with all their questions, all their disputes. So Jethro, you saw there in the passage, he essentially says to Moses, paraphrasing, what on earth are you doing? You're nuts. This is just nuts, he says. So in verses 15 and 16, Moses explains what he's doing. Take a look there in verse 15. He says, because the people come to me to seek God's will, 
Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Now, if you're going to be a bit busy or a bit overworked, that's a pretty good reason, isn't it? The people want to come to me to know God's will. What am I supposed to do? I've got to teach them all, Moses is saying. And they particularly come when they've got a dispute. You know, maybe you can imagine someone comes and hey, Moses, this woman stole my goat. You know, what, what, what are we supposed to do in that situation? This person lied to me and broke into my tent. You know, they're camping there in the mountain. Right, well, what are we supposed to do? How do we sort this thing out? This, this boy over here keeps flirting with my daughter. What am I supposed to do with him, right? You see, they're coming to Moses with all these disputes over and over again, wondering how are we supposed to live now that we've become the people of God in light of his salvation. It's not like the Israelites grew up with the Ten Commandments, you know, they were all being taught them. They didn't. They didn't even grow up in a culture that that was shaped by the Ten Commandments somewhat like ours. When they became uh, the people of God, they had to be taught how they should live, how they should behave as God's people. They had to be taught God's decrees, instructions, God's law, as is referenced here in verses 15 and 16. Now, some of you might have questions about that because you might think, hey, wait a second, you know, I I thought they didn't get God's law until Exodus 20 to 24, and here we are in Exodus 18, and Moses is already teaching them God's law. How does that all fit together? Uh, My short answer is, we can talk more later on, but my short answer is it seems like God has revealed uh, bits and pieces of his law to Moses so he can start teaching the people, but the full revelation of God's law comes in Exodus 20 to 24. Happy to talk more about that laughter. Still, despite this kind of reasonable explanation in verses 17 and 18, uh, Jethro is not satisfied. But he wisely points out that the status quo, like the current ministry structure, just isn't sustainable. Take a look. Even though Moses' desire is good, right? he's eager to teach God's people how they should live, And the people's desire is good, right? That they're coming to Moses with questions about how they should live as God's people. Both of those things are good. But what does Jethro say? He says, Moses, what you are doing is not good. Good desires. But what Moses is doing is not good. Why? Because if Moses sticks with his current plan, not only is he going to get worn out, but he's going to wear the people out. You see, it's not just about Moses getting tired. Jethro says, you and and the people will get worn out because Moses won't be able to deal with all their disputes and the people will get frustrated with Moses because he can't deal with all their disputes. And this reminds us that the part of serving as a Christian, being engaged in ministry, uh, is learning to accept your weaknesses and limitations and to say no to all sorts of good ministry opportunities. To say no to good things, to better things, so that you can focus on the best things. If you try to hold on to everything yourself, if you try to say yes to everything, you not only end up wearing yourself out, you end up wearing other people out. Because you're not able to serve their needs well. Now, I'm preaching that to myself just as much as you guys, right? It's been a good lesson for me this week, as I keep trying to let go of things. Uh, In verses 9 and 20, 
in the rest of the passage, verses 19 to 27, Jethro proposes his alternate ministry structure. I don't, I don't ever let someone tell you that how you structure ministry is not important. Here it is, right? Uh, verses 19 and 20, Jethro wants to preserve Moses' role. But he's going to remain the ultimate leader and teacher of God's people, ultimate judge of God's people as God's prophet. He's going to keep uh, entering into God's presence, receiving direct revelation from God about how God's people should live. And he's going to teach that to God's people. That's really important. Right? The, the, the Israelites are like new believers, new Christians. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone who hasn't been a Christian for very long, but they're full of questions. Now that I'm a Christian, how should I think about the environment, about sex, about power, about money, uh, about this relationship with this person at my work? Like now that I'm a Christian, that makes a difference to that, right? The Israelites have all these questions about how they should live. And, uh, of course, whether you're a new Christian or, or a mature Christian, we all come across these questions. It's really confusing and complicated to know how we should live as God's people in this world. And so we have to be taught, like the Israelites, from God's word about how we should live. We've got all these questions. Where do we find the answers? Not primarily by looking to the culture, looking out to the culture around us. Not primarily by looking in to our own personal feelings. Oh, I won't do that because it doesn't feel right. Well, I don't know. We, we find our answers primarily by looking down to God's word, like the Israelites here. God rules his people by his word. That's where the authority is. And God's word was revealed to prophets like Moses. And in the New Testament to the apostles, and ultimately written down in the Bible, so that we as God's people today can be taught and guided in how we should live. Like Jethro doesn't want Moses to, to step aside from his leadership. He just wants Moses to share his leadership, to multiply leaders and teachers of God's people so that everyone can know how they should live. Oh, sorry, in verses 21 and 20, uh, to 27, that's what Moses does, right? He shares the leadership of God's people uh, with some qualified men. And that's not to say that women can't be involved with the leadership and teaching of God's people, right? That they absolutely can. Uh, but it is to say for this particular role, Moses is to appoint these qualified men. Take a look in verse 21. Jethro says to Moses, uh, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Uh, select these men, Jethro says. That, the word select, that implies a bit of discernment, a bit of insight. It's like when I go to the corner shop with my kids and they have to select an ice cream. You'd be very surprised how complicated that is, right? It's a, it's a process that requires great discernment to pick out. Right? That, that's the idea here. Uh, Moses is to select these people. And that's important because when you're overworked and busy, it's tempting to just dump stuff on anyone, right? whether they're suitable for the job or not. I delegate that to you. Oh, it's off my plate. But that's not what Jethro is advocating. Select people wisely with insight and discernment and select capable men, right? men who can actually do the job. Right, Beck mentioned earlier, willingness is a wonderful thing. When talking with Mari, it's a wonderful thing to be willing to serve the Lord. 
but also you've got to be able to do some stuff. And Mari can do some stuff too, let me tell you, right? Like it's, uh, willingness by itself isn't enough. You actually have to learn and grow in, in particular capacities. It's like when Paul was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 about appointing elders in the church in Ephesus. He says that the elders have to be able to do two things. Have to be able to teach, have to be able to manage their own households. Why are some capacities and abilities actually are important as they are here? Uh, but as in 1 Timothy 3, here in Exodus 18, uh, having particular abilities isn't the main thing. Right? Character is absolutely the main thing. Take a look there. Moses is to appoint, first and foremost, uh, men who relate well to God in that they fear God. Uh, these are men who uh, live their lives with an appropriate awe and reverence for God, respect for God. The God who created them, the God who redeemed them, the God who sustains them and gives them every breath that they take. They're supposed to fear God. Why is that so important in a leader and, uh, and judge of God's people? Well, it's important because if you fear God uh, at, at the utmost, then you'll make decisions first and foremost uh, that are about pleasing God, not pleasing people. I'd imagine being in a situation where people were coming to you with all their disputes. It'd be tempting to try and please the most, the loud one, or the most, yeah, the kind of most, uh, what's the word, obnoxious one, or the most aggressive one. Just do whatever they want. No, no, no. These have to be men who are driven by pleasing God, not pleasing people. Fearing God is critical. And if you kind of fear God, it doesn't mean that people become not important. It just means that people become the right amount of importance. Right? You relate to them well. And that's what we see here. These men relate to others well. They're trustworthy men, men who hate dishonest gain. You see the idea? These are men who won't be swayed by bribery and greed and corruption when they're making decisions. Men of integrity, men who are going to stand by their word, men who are going to be faithful and just in their judgments. Moses is to select these men, appoint them over different sized groups of people, presumably according to their capacity, and they're to handle the lower level disputes, you know, like the magistrate's court and the county court or something, but don't kick them up to the Supreme Court unless it's really necessary. That's the, the basic idea here. And at the end of the passage, Moses humbly listens to his father-in-law, puts into practice his advice, and it works. It's wonderful. So the point of this section uh, is that God's people, who've been wonderfully saved by his grace, actually have to be taught how to live in line with his word. And as DPC has grown, that's become a job that is much too big just for me. Just like this job for Moses was much too big for him. They had a much bigger capacity for him than me. You know, Israel was over a million people by that stage. I had to put on staff much sooner, so uh, much weaker. Uh, but the point is, no, much too big a job for me. We had to appoint paid ministry staff like Adam and, and Anna. Had to appoint more elders to help with the teaching of God's word. Had to appoint more gospel community leaders all the time to help with the teaching of God's word, more children's and youth leaders to help with the teaching of God's word, so that together we can get around God's word and work out what it looks like for us to live as God's saved people in line with his word, in the midst of all life's complications and confusions. 
Uh, of course, multiplying leaders and teachers by itself isn't enough. Like, that's what we have to do to make sure everyone gets fed, everyone gets taught. We have to keep multiplying leaders and teachers. But that's not sufficient if we don't have a, an attitude of being willing to humbly receive teaching from God's Word. Or we've got to have a culture in which when we're wrestling with a particular situation in our life, a particular decision, we might actually say, I'm not sure I have the answer for this, and we might say to a brother or sister in Christ or an elder or a gospel community leader or a pastor or whoever it might be, we might say, hey, I'm really wrestling with this situation. I don't know what to do. Can we sit and look at God's word together? Because part of being a Christian is knowing I've got blind spots, I'm sinful, I'm foolish, I make dumb decisions, and we've got to get together around God's word so we can work out what it looks like to live in line with God's word together. I wonder if you're willing to do that. Not just to hear teaching from God's word, but to humbly receive it and be willingly shaped by it. Which leads to the third thing, which is having received teaching from God's word, we've actually got to commit to living in line with it. Right? It's often in our sin that, that we're tempted to, to think that life would be better or a bit easier if we just kind of rejected God's word or at least reinterpreted God's word. Right? So that it, it fits a little bit more neatly with the flow of our culture or our own personal opinions and experiences at the time. Just kind of reinterpret it a little bit so we don't have to change. Right? But in the end, that suggests that we don't really trust that God is good. That we think, like the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden, that, that maybe God's word can't be trusted. Maybe what he says isn't for our good. But we can trust that our God is good, can't we? Because he redeemed us, not just from slavery, political or economic slavery, but the slavery to the ultimate things that oppress us. Slavery to the sin that we just can't stop doing. Right? He redeemed us from that slavery. And he redeemed us not by, just by the blood of some little farmyard animal, you know, the Israelites with their lambs, but by the blood of the, the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate lamb of God who gave his life on the cross. How do you know God is good? You know he's good because he gave his son for you. Therefore, you can know that your heavenly father is good all the way through, that he's working for your good all the time, and therefore it is always good for you to hear his word, to be taught from his word, and to commit to living in line with his word. It might mean a bit of short-term pain. I'm not saying that. It might mean a bit of discomfort. But in the scheme of eternity, it is for your good. How should we live in light of salvation. Well, in this passage we see that we respond to God's gracious act of saving us by sharing the good news of what he's done, that many others might come to know Christ, and by sharing the leadership of God's people, that we might all know how to live in line with God's word. I'm going to pray, and maybe Tim and Ken want to come up because we'll be singing. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we do pray uh, that uh, we, as your people, uh, would faithfully live in light of the wonderful salvation you have uh, brought for us through Christ your Son, uh, that we would share the good news of what you've done, that others might come to know Christ. And Father, that we would share the leadership and teaching of your people, that we might all know how we can live in line with your word. 
Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.